And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast taping on a Thursday afternoon where, oh my God, the Memphis Grizzlies are 20 and 4 in their last 24 games. Just beat the Warriors at home. Not an emphatic win, but a pretty damn strong crunch time performance. They have overtaken the Utah Jazz for third in the Western Conference. Somehow that's a thing that has happened. And they are asking, forcing me and others to ask all sorts of questions we didn't expect to be asking. Like, is this team already a contender? To help us answer that, a guy that knows I, I needed to go right to Memphis. I didn't I, I didn't need to go to someone who parachutes in. I need to go someone from the city, the fabric of the city, who knows this team up and down, and nobody knows them better than columnist for the Daily Memphian, a guy who's writing I've been reading for I don't even know how long anymore. Chris Harrington, how are you, my old friend? Hey Zach, good to see you. Even if even if it's across the, the computer screen, good to see you. I keep saying I'm going to go visit Memphis, and then bad things keep happening in the world, and I haven't been able to visit Memphis. But my God, what a team you have going there! And let's just review the the specifics. Other than the twenty and four thing, they are fourth in offense for the season, which I think has to rank as among the most surprising stats of the whole season, considering they still don't shoot threes or even right. shoot the ball from anywhere all that well. They're up to ninth in defense, and I feel like they've moved up 12 spots in the last two weeks. They're sixth in net rating. In other words, Chris, they're starting to check a lot of the boxes of, like, this team is not just a cute, hey, maybe they'll get in, and, you know, they won a game from Utah in the first round last year. Maybe they'll push someone for a couple couple wins in the first round, and it'll all be about next year. What the hell is going on here? How do you regard this team right now? They're so far ahead of schedule. It's insane. I it, it, They have taken even Memphis by surprise. I, I did not anticipate. It's been a gradual thing. About a month ago, like everyone else, I predicted them to like, you know, be fighting, be a play-in team, maybe fighting for the six, uh, best case scenario kind of thing. About a month ago, I wrote a column saying it's time to upgrade, our, you know, our goals and expectations. And, and the goal should now be to be the four seed. It's not, you know, the expectation is to be a play-in team at bare minimum, and the goal is to be a top four seed. That was a month ago, and that was that was considered a little lofty even locally. That that to say that that's the goal now, and now like now that's not the goal. Now that that's like the minimum expectation I think now to be the four seed because they have like a five-game gap from you know down to to six. Um, and I don't put a I don't put a ceiling on it anymore. I, I think you know the range of possible has both expanded and shifted to me. Um, let's note, you know, the low end of that range to me is still like losing decisively in the first round, like they did last year. And that would not be shocking to anyone. I think that'd be two weeks ago. That would have been like, Hey, that's fine. This team's amazing. And and that is more likely than the high end of the range. But the high end of the range for me is like, I would not be shocked if they came out of the West. And partly that's, I don't think, I think I know the two record wise, the best teams are in the West. I think ceiling wise, the best teams are in the East. And so I don't, you know, I don't see Golden State, Phoenix, or Utah, who they've now passed, as as, as world beaters. These are not juggernaut teams to me. And so I, I put no ceiling on it. We'll see what happens. But to me, it's about the three most important, truly young players on the team have all taken leaps. Um, John Moran has taken the leap, capital L leap, as a, as a core offensive player, as an offensive engine. Um, Desmond Bain has taken a leap as a shooter, and I think the most under-the-radar thing and, and extremely important 
is that Jaron Jackson Jr. has taken the leap as a defensive player. And when you have one of you have a if you have a first team, a potential first team all NBA guard, which is what John Moran is now, he's in that conversation. It, you have one of the five to ten best offensive engines in basketball, and you have good role players around that player, and you have an elite defensive player in your front court and in the perimeter when Dylan Brooks gets back. Like they don't have the multiple like true all star players, but they have a mix of elite skill sets that fit together. Um, and so I don't think it's a fluke. I think I think they are what their record says they are. Chris, John Morant is not even 22 and a half years old. And right. Jaron Jackson Jr., who everyone was like, boy, his three-point shot, what an asset for the Grizzlies when he can pick and pop for threes or you put him at center as a small ball five, the spacing, is shooting 31% from right. three and averaging 16 points a game. It's like there's – this is like – it's crazy how fast this has happened. And it has me asking a question. Like I was talking to you about this over email. I enlisted our, our, our stats guru, Kevin Pelton. Like I don't remember there, there are not a lot of examples of a young team, almost purely young, right? Like the keep, there's no key injection of like a past his prime Shaq or a past his prime Chris Paul, or still in his prime Chris Paul, or KG and Ray Allen, or LeBron and free agency. There's no veteran injection of talent like that. And in the middle of a season, not even like from offseason to season, just suddenly pops and becomes not just a good team, but maybe a contender. And I'm not sure I'm ready to put Memphis there, but they're they're kind of dragging me there by, by the scruff of my neck. This team was 9-10. and 10. And now they're 29 and 14. And so I went looking for like, has this, like, when did this ever happen before? And I found a couple of, of, of potential analogs. Did you find any? So not a perfect one. I think let's start with the cautionary tale since this is such a, um, you know, an optimistic Grizzlies mood here. The cautionary tale to some degree is Atlanta even just last year. Uh, you know, not as young as the Grizzlies, but their two best players were 22 and 23 and Trey Young and John Collins. All of their core players, other than Gallo, were in their 20s at least. That team started 14 and 20, got hot middle of the season, and ended up in a conference finals. And now we see where they are now. So that's sort of the the, um, the cautionary tale. Well, that was depressing. Give me the right. irrational exuberance tale because that's how I feel right now. So last year, when the Grizzlies beat the Warriors and clinched their their, their first playoffs, real true playoff spot of the John Morant era, there was a factoid that sort of got batted around in NBA media, and it was that the Grizzlies last season were the youngest playoff team in a decade. And what that meant was they were uh, supposedly the youngest playoff team since the Thunder 2009-2010. I sort of poo-pooed that from, from a Memphis perspective by saying that Thunder team in 2009-2010, the heavy lifting was all done by their youngest players. The four top players, top scorers in that team were all 23 and under. It was Durant, Harden, um, Westbrook, and then Jeff Green, who was 23 that season. That was not the story of the Grizzlies last season when they broke through. Other than John Morant, it was career years from late 20s vets. It was a Jonas Valanciunas career year. It was a Kyle Anderson career year. And what I wrote at the end of that playoff series was, this is not the start of something with this. This was the, this was the core four for now. This was the temporary core four last season. It, that they, they might take a step back, and they haven't, obviously, but that they might take a step back this season because it was going to get recalibrated around the actual youth of the roster. And this season, it's been the heavy lifting of the actual youth. It's John Morant, 22, Jaron Jackson, 22, Desmond Bain, 23. And so in some ways, the Thunder is an analog. The problem with that is that that Thunder team had three of those four players who wanted to win league MVPs. 
I would set the over under of future league MVPs of this uh, number of players winning league MVPs at 0.5 on this Grizzlies <laughs> roster, right? Um, it's, you know, maybe John Morant could squeak through and win one. No one, no one's going to envision anyone else on this roster going that far. Um, and so it doesn't, and you know, you look at the Warriors team when they broke through, it was, you know, Curry was already 24, but Clay and Draymond were 22. That was a young homegrown core. It's hard to imagine the ceiling comparing to those Thunder and Warriors teams that broke through in terms of, of, of elite talent. But you have one truly elite talent and, again, a lot of elite skill sets that mesh together. And so I think there are other analogs, you know, in terms of thinking of title contention. But in terms of young – it's somewhere between the Hawks last year and those Warriors Thunder teams. I'm not ready to put it up with the Warriors Thunder teams, obviously. And the Warriors just took that side turn into Durantville that sort of yeah, changed yeah. the entire course of the of the earth, basically. Did you um, have comps other than those? I mean, we talked about the Bulls a little bit. The, the thing with the Bulls team – other than Rose, it wasn't that young. So the ones I tried to come up with were the 0-9-10 Thunder, who started 14-14, and 14, and were coming off a truly miserable season before that one. Not miserable, just like young team season. And then exploded and finished 50-32, and 32, which, by the way, in the West got you the eight seed. seed. <laughs> was an eight seed, right. That's insane. Uh, and then lost to the Lakers. The Derrick Rose Bulls, as you said, they, they were a little maybe older in terms of you know rotation minutes than right. the current Grizzlies. But that struck me as an interesting analog because so many of their players, some of their key players were quite young. Rose, Noah, Dang even then was still young. And they started the season, I think they were 500 the year before and started the season nine and eight. Obviously the new thing there was Tom Thibodeau. But to go from nine and eight in season to 62 and 20, that was interesting to me. Well, the parallels between Derrick Rose, year three, age 22, and John Morant, year three, age 22, they're inescapable. They're so inescapable. I've been writing about this for two years. I wrote a column before last season saying don't have too high expectations for John Morant because when you look at the pattern of point guards of his ilk, the Rose and the Westbrook and these guys, that the big leaps happen in year three. So I wrote before last season, don't expect the big leap yet for Derek, for John Rand. It's maybe a year away. And the parallels in terms of their their age, their games, and their production this season have had been there from the beginning. And now suddenly, from a team standpoint, like Derrick Rose would not have won the MVP that season if the, if the Bulls don't win the East. John Morant probably won't win the MVP this season, certainly, but the only chance he would have is if the Grizzlies win the West. And so this team elevation is where the, the parallel really sort of connects, I think. The only other ones that I really liked to any degree were the 11-12 Pacers that kind of came from nowhere to be a second-round playoff team, but they had Danny Remind, Granger yeah, and I looked at George Hill. Right. And uh, George, that was when they made the Kawhi for George Hill trade. And then Mike Granger was already like 25-26, something like that. Yeah. yeah, and one of my favorite teams were the uh, that kind of fits the 2008 New Orleans Hornets with the young Chris Paul that went from 39 wins the year before to 56 and 26 and took the Spurs to seven in the second round. They actually had that game at home. They started the season 15 and 10, so not quite like 9 and 10. They had a key vet in Pedro Stojakovic. David West was 27. That kind of counts as young still. But there are just not a lot of great comps to what yeah. even that Oklahoma City team, as you said, it feels so anomalous given that fact that all three of those guys were picked in the top four. All three of them not went on to win MVP. Like it just seems this is this is just a, it's it's Morant and just a and a great collective it of feels players. Like more when you think about teams that have competed for titles, it feels like more of a very young sort of a mini me version 
of more of like a Milwaukee Bucks team with Giannis and and balance. They're talent. on my list, except Giannis was in his, his right. No, fifth that's what I'm saying. It's point. not doesn't mean the parallel is not used, but the parallel is construction. It feels like more of a if you want to imagine teams that have competed for titles, it's more of a Milwaukee Giannis kind of situation, more of a Kawhi Toronto situation. Dirk, Dirk in Dallas, it is the one superstar, and can you have the balance of talent that fits well with him? Is that enough to sneak through? And part of my optimism about the Grizzlies' potential ceiling, in terms of just what is possible, wildly thinking, is that I think we have maybe, I hope, we have to get past this notion that you have to have multiple Hall of Famers in their prime to think about winning a title, because um, that that's not what this is ever going to be. But that's not what Milwaukee was, and that's not what Phoenix was, frankly, and that's not what you know Toronto was, and that's not what the Miami Heat team that, that made it to the finals against the Lakers was. Maybe you don't have to have some version of Durant, Curry, LeBron, Wade, Kobe, Shaq. Like those, you know, maybe you can dream of a title without with only having one of those kind of players. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's start a little bit with the collective because and we'll talk about job ja because my God, do I love John ja Moran. Um, but what's really impressed me about this Memphis team, especially in the wake of, as you said, trading away Valanchunas, who was such a hub of their offense. Yeah. He, he was the security blanket, right? Just throw it in there. He'll get you something good is how adaptable they are. So they trade Valanchunas in comes Steven Adams. Everyone saw what a downgrade offensively Steven Adams is. Well, what it allowed them to do, as you know, was we'll just run spread, pick, and roll. We have Morant and Adams up the middle, shooting all around them. That works. Well, Steven Adams goes into protocols. Okay, we'll start Jaron Jackson Jr. at center. Hey, slow-mo, you had your career year last year. You've kind of been shifted into less of a ball-dominant role this season. You're not quite lost in the shuffle, but you're not as central a part of the shuffle as you were. And I think that's kind of linked to Valanchunas' departure and just sort of shifting more stuff to Morant and Jackson. Hey, come on in. You're starting now because Steven Adams, and they just don't, they don't miss a beat. John Conchar, we need you to start. Don't miss a beat. Killian Tilly, 17 yeah. people on earth outside of Gonzaga <laughs> have heard of you. Come start at the three. The three, right. And makes enough shots. And like, they're just so, and, and by the way, they're not playing slouches in these games. They just beat the Warriors the other night with that sort of impromptu starting five. They beat the Lakers playing a certain style. Like, the, the adapted Dylan Brooks has been out for, what, half the season now? Yeah. The, the Melton was out for a long time. It's just guy after guy after guy. And it's not just next man up. It's, okay, we got to lean in toward this style of play tonight. Oh, well, well that style's out of our hands. we got to lean toward this style of play. And they just make it work. 
the Adams thing has been interesting to me because he had he was good at the very very beginning of the season, but then he had a really rough few weeks early on when they got off to they were like nine and ten or whatever, where he was not he, he couldn't finish anything around the rim and his few opportunities to the point that Dylan Brooks was cracking jokes in public interviews about yeah we 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 need Steve-O to finish better. And defensively, he looked like maybe he had lost a step. He was getting even drop, even in drop coverage, guys were just blowing by him to the rim. Maybe he was a little banged up. But the last month or so before his, you know, his recent absence for the protocols, he's been everything they could have reasonably imagined he would be. And what is interesting to me is that they've taken his limited offensive game, broken it into components and maximized those those components. When you think of what is Steven Adams good at on offense? Well, he's great at setting screens. He's great at offensive rebounding, and he's like a sneaky good passer. This season, he's like 10 years into his career. It's the best offensive rebound rate of his career. It's the highest assist rate of his career, and he's among the league leaders in your favorite stat, the screen assist. Oh, and, every, yeah. time, every time he does, I, I yell out, screen assist! Mark it down, screen assist! Put him but, in the Hall of Fame for the screen assist! The point assist. is, like, he's not Jonas. You, you, don't, you don't throw him the ball and let him go to work. He does not even take jump shots, like at all, of any kind. He won't even take them, much less make, make them. He does. He, he, I set screens. I pass out of the high post. I crash the boards and he's doing those three things within the context of the offense and excelling in all three. Um, and then defensively now that, you know, again, it was rough early on, but since he's come back, um, he and Jared, it's interesting with him and Jaron because they are great with him and Jaron together. Um, they're also really, you may want to go this way. You may not, but they really look good with Jaron at center. And that's an interesting question going forward. Well, I mean, Jaron at center is sort of this thing where you think of, oh my God, he's the he's the lone big guy on the floor. Is that going to be too much responsibility for him? But a lot of the Jaron at center minutes also have Brandon Clark, who right. brings you size and athleticism. And I don't need to tell you because I know you know that duo is absolutely obliterating teams this year. The Grizz are plus sixteen per 100 possessions with those two on the floor. And Brandon Clark's sort of re-renaissance or whatever has been a big part of their success this year. He had a great rookie year. Last year, kind of injuries just sapped him. He was trying to shoot threes. This year, he's just, I'm going to hit my floater. I'm going to dunk. I'm going to come from the baseline to dunk. I'll roll so Jackson can space. I'll do all that stuff. And, and they've been – and so so there is – like when he's at center, a lot of times there's some beef and size on the floor with him. Well, their games really click on both ends. I mean, to your point, like offensively, Jaron spaces, Clark rolls. So you got that dynamic. And then defensively, Jaron's the rim protector. Jaron can guard whoever the better player is. And that frees up Clark to like, you know, be a little bit more of a free safety and, and grab rebounds and, and stuff like that. And I think, I think, I think it, it, it fits really well. And I think there's a question about, could that be the starting front court? You know, when you're going to next season and beyond is a big question. But I think part of the reason this on the defensive end, this is now fitting so well is that I said earlier, Jaron is just Jaron Jackson Jr. came into the NBA. The book on him when he was drafted, at least my my sense was that he was going to be a defense first player. It's hard to be a defense first player when you're 19 years old, when you come into the NBA. And for the until this season, he had been a player who has good defensive moments and good defensive stretches, but had not been a good defensive player. And this season, he has become, I think, one of the better de- all-around front defensive front court players in the league. I think he's a legitimate, not first team probably, but a legitimate candidate for an all all defensive team, like a second team all defense. Well, the the best tribute I can pay his improvement on defense, other than that, is they played Golden State the other night. Yeah, and the same thing happened against the Lakers when the Lakers are playing LeBron at center. So LeBron at center, that's pretty damn small lineup. 
the Warriors went even smaller than they usually go because Draymond was out. So they played like Wiggins at center, Iguodala at center. And the Grizzlies said, you know what? That's cool. For the most part, we'll keep our two big guys on the floor and we'll bet on our size over your speed and shooting in part because our size has enough speed and shooting and skill to stay on the floor with you. And they bet right. Jaron Jackson Jr. didn't just hang in against the Warriors. He hung in against on switches against Steph. He was ready to rotate to the rim on all those split actions to get them backdoor cuts. He obliterated some of those at the basket. He wasn't just, oh my God, I'm surviving. I'm surviving. Oh, we get the ball now. He was thriving defensively. And now, and again, they didn't have Draymond. Clay's just coming back. It's not like the A-plus Warriors. Any small ball lineup with Steph and some playmaking is pretty damn hard to guard, and they looked so comfortable against it. It was really, really encouraging. Well, he can, he can test everything all over the floor. Um, I, I haven't looked at this in a couple of days, but I'm pretty sure he leads the Grizzlies in contested two-point shots and contested three-point shots, which I don't know how rare that is, but I mean, that seems I rare. Mean, yeah. Um, he can test everything all over the floor, and his he's brought his foul rate down into more of a manageable territory this year. It's like it's it's last I looked, cleaning the glass, it was around 40th percentile for he, he bigs. He did get into foul trouble in that Warriors game. I should yeah. at least acknowledge that. He, I think he only played 24 minutes or something. Although, I, will, I won't get too much of my soapbox in your podcast. Foul trouble is a state of mind, my friend. He, he, he They pulled him out with four fouls early in the third quarter. He finished the game with four fouls. It is okay to let a player foul out of a game. But it is also a state of mind. For a player. At, that in, is a problem. Yeah. For the player, right? Like if they yeah. if they are playing tentatively because they're afraid they have foul trouble, in a lot of cases, they are better off going to the bench because you can't play effectively and tentatively. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's just, it's, it always bothers me when players are limited. You, you play a player less than you want to because of quote-unquote fouls, but they never foul out. Like to me, you're just really leaving stuff on the table there. Um. Jaron, to me, the real ceiling of this team, when you think about it long-term, is a Jaron question. It's a Jaron Jackson Jr. question. Because John Morant, I think, is is known as long as he stays healthy. To me, the ceiling is about whether Jaron Jackson Jr. can put all, all everything together. He has been this bundle of tantalizing attributes. We've seen different pieces at different times. I think he was, he was a surprisingly effective paint scorer as a rookie. He had a historic three-point shooting season for a young big man his second year. The defense has taken the leap this year, but like he's never put all the pieces together at the same time. And if he can somehow like get back to the shooting we saw year two with the defense we're seeing now, now you're talking about an all-star player. I'm, be- I'm I would bet on that. I, 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 don't would, think, too. I, don't I think would too. I don't think I don't think the shooting was fluky just because of the sheer variety of ways in which he got off his shot, right. coming off pin downs, off the dribble, pick and pops, tight contest. That wasn't like a random. Oh, he made 38 percent of wide open threes, spotting up, kind of shooting stuff. That was real stuff. And you, I just want to go back to Adams for a second. Yeah, you you mentioned the offensive rebounding, and they're number one in offensive rebounding rate. And, and this links to Jackson because if this team can ever figure out how to shoot from anywhere other than floater range, and they are the floater gods of the NBA and have been for two or three seasons now, look out because they're already fourth. And the main reason they're fourth, other than Ja, is they're winning the possession game right. every single night. They're first in offensive rebounding. They have a low turnover rate. And on the other end, they're a good defensive rebounding team who forces a ton of turnover. So they're probably getting like six extra shots a game their free throws are neutral so it's not like they're over fouling to get all those turnovers like they're just they're not a good shooting team yet and the low-hanging fruit to get from where they are to average is just jaron jackson jr hitting threes 
What's funny to me is how much this sort of stylistic discussion is like this franchise heirloom that gets passed down through the generations because, <laughs> because this team in so many ways is nothing like those old grit and grind teams, but the story of the grit and grind teams was they, they, they made up for their poor shooting by being great on the offensive boards and winning turnover differential, like steel steals and offensive rebounds are like family heirlooms. Those two stats that have been handed down. And to some degree, you even go back to the old Hubie team was like that, like turnover differential, like making up for like other problems on offense is something that's, that's been a multi-generational Grizzlies thing. But to your point, that's not what they want. Taylor Jenkins wants to let it fly. He wants to be a three point shooting team and he's done a masterful job as a head coach. That is the one thing in terms of his vision, they have not been able to quite get across the finish line. And if they can get Jaron shooting like he's capable of, along with Desmond Bain shooting like he's capable of, and especially Jaron playing a lot of minutes at center shooting that way, then like they got they a chance to get there. Let's talk about the real story, which is that Morant is just absolutely yep. incredible. And this front office has nailed pretty much every move on the margins and some even like better than the margins since they took over Zach Kleiman and company other than the Justice Winslow trade, which I said on this podcast, I mean, there are certain corners of nerd Grizz Twitter who like beat them up over that. And oh my God, Josh Jackson, to me, that was always a no harm, no foul, like minimal, minimal, like it, if it goes yeah. bust, it goes bust. Everything else from Brooks to Melton, who they traded on draft night and then somehow got back in a completely lopsided trade with Phoenix to the Conley and Gasol trades and on and on and on. Bane, stealing Bane from Boston with a draft night trade at 30. All that stuff is cool. It's really important. It's really important when you have John Moran. Without John Moran, all that stuff is just cute and nobody's talking about it. And the biggest thing that happened to this team is that they moved up from number eight to number two in the year that John Moran was going to be the number two pick. This dude is absolutely incredible. And I haven't been around him much because of the pandemic. So I want you to speak to this as much as you can because it's not like you can be in the locker room and all this talking to him that much. But to me, and I've written this and I've said it before, the coolest thing about John Morant, and look, there's a lot of cool shit about John Morant. That block, that block was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. But the coolest thing about him from a foundational long-term perspective is He has a little of the – this is going to sound crazy considering how much trash he talks. He has a little bit of the Tim Duncan, Steph Curry thing in him in that he's a franchise player, and I'm not putting him on those levels. Those are Mount Rushmore all-time NBA player kind of guys. John might get there soon. But he's a franchise player who does not act in any way as if he owns the franchise, as if the franchise belongs to him, as if he cares about his touches, his points, about being the most famous guy in the room, about any of that stuff. And I'm going to talk later about how that stuff translates to on the court. But I'm wondering if if you can elaborate on that at all. Maybe I'm totally wrong because I'm not there with him every day. And But if I'm right, has that sort of resonated with the fan base there? Is that if people started to notice that? Well, hey, first it resonates in the locker room. And to me, I think you're correct, but this is a two-way street. And I'll start on the other side of the street. I noticed a few days ago, Solomon Hill, formerly the Atlanta Hawks, now headed to the New York Knicks, Solomon Hill tweeted out a John Morant all-star vote on Twitter. Solomon Hill was one of his teammates when he was a rookie year. When John Morant came in as a rookie, partly they had good veterans on that team, Solomon Hill, Jay Crowder, Jonas Valanciunas, Kyle Anderson. There was an immediate an instant recognition and acceptance by everyone on the locker room from the veterans to Jaron Jackson Jr. coming off, you know, his rookie season, that this is the guy. 
this is the guy. We line up behind this guy. He, he moves immediately, instantly to the top of the pecking order, and we all fall in line behind him. There was an immediate recognition by everyone he's played with, as near as I can tell, that he is the guy and we go to battle with this guy. And so there's been that, that acceptance from, from the beginning. And then the other side of the street, he is generous, not only as a player, but as a person in wanting to bring his teammates along with him on, on his ascension and the city along with him, which I think, you know, Memphis appreciates. You know, you see that from like one of the two like great spiritual moments of the Grizzly season was in that Warriors game when he he hits was essentially the game winning shot and he, he he looks up and he sees two little kids in Warriors jerseys trying to dap them up and he he, he refuses refuses to grant them their wish. His First kids of all, gotta learn. I loved that. I right. loved it because all I hear and like I'm going to sound like old man yelling at cloud, but right. I think it's true. I'm 44. I think anyone people like 25 and under there's this whole generation of fans where a lot of them are, are fans of players as much as they are of teams yep. and Morant doing that was such an old school like no man this is Memphis you want to cheer for me cheer for our team don't cheer for don't wear that jersey the worst of the fans who wear jerseys <laughs> of random players who are not on any team that's in the game like if you're wearing a Jason a Jason Tatum jersey like a Knicks Warriors game what, what are you doing well, he did. It. He did it to seven-year-olds, right? That's fine. Start them <laughs> yeah. young. Teach them young. The only way we're going to get good sports fans is to be mean to them, if necessary, right. when they're young. Chris. And even before that, when the Lakers had come to town, he had had quotes of that effect. He's like going back to L.A. Like you know, you'll be in my building with these jerseys. You know, when his Nike ad came out earlier this year, it was a Memphis ad. It was a. It was a. I'm taking the city with me. And so his attitude is, I'm taking the city with me. I'm taking my teammates with me. Um, he has that generosity of spirit while also being comfortable that he's the guy, like he knows that he is the guy. And so he has, he is, you know, he has issues in his game, which we can talk about. Defense is an issue. Shooting before this season is an issue. And I don't think that's entirely a box. I don't, even want, to, we'll I don't even want to talk about any John Moran issues. All right, I'm just trying I'm not, too I'm good try, of a mood. Well, I'm trying not to sound like too much of the Homer as someone talking from Memphis. I'm acknowledge there are other things, but he has, he does have an, an elite mentality to go with some of us, his elite basketball skills. And I think that mentality is part of the story of this team coming together um, and, and the way they've fallen in line behind him and their expectations they have for themselves. Like he has, he has that it factor in terms of being a winning basketball player, not just a spectacular basketball player. And that combination, that combination of the skill with the mentality, I think is that's where you, that's where superstars come from when you can put those two things together. From the first time I laid eyes on him in the NBA, I said on this podcast and in writing, whatever it is, John Morant has it. Here are just some examples from one game, the Warriors game, one game of, of what it means to be the franchise player but not care about owning the franchise and being the guy. So he scores those two big buckets in the last 90 seconds of the game, right? They've been all over the highlights. The second one was when he yelled at the small child, right. which, again, thumbs up for yelling at the small child. Yeah. Um, the first one came off a catch-and-go after Tyus Jones ran a pick-and-roll on the right side of the floor and kicked to Morant, and he drove on the left wing. Tyus Jones, when John Morant got hurt, hurt his ankle, Tyus Jones started taking more shots than I ever thought Tyus Jones would ever want to take in his entire life and realized, hey, I'm, I'm not bad at this. He was cooking in that game against the Warriors, and John Morant, if you watch those crunch time possessions, half of them, he's like, I'll be in the corner, man. You you want to pass the ball to me? That's fine. You do your thing. You're cooking. I'll do it when when what I'll do my thing if and when the ball gets to me. 
He's willing to play off the ball, and he's increasingly dangerous off the ball now that the shooting's starting to come around. He was already extremely dangerous as a cutter. As a he, he is an elite two-way lob player in that he is elite on both ends of an alley-oop. Um, I don't know how many players are like Dude, great at throwing a, them and great he, at catching them. He and Zaire Williams, who has right. been playing great since since he came back from injury or protocols, or I can't keep track of who's hurt and who's in protocols. Uh, they were like the Globetrotters that they get. Like a Globetrotters exhibition broke out in the middle of a Warriors-Grizzlies game between those two. And the cutting is the second one I was going to say. Yeah. He had a backdoor cut, Morant did, for a dunk. For a guy who is a ball-dominant point guard, you don't see a lot of them come into the NBA at age 20 as elite off-ball players. He was and is one already. Yeah. And he does have a usage rate, you know, over 30%. He's got extremely high usage rate, but it doesn't feel, when you watch the games, to your point, it doesn't feel like every possession is dependent on John Morant dominating the ball. The other one, and this is my favorite one, it was in the second half. No, it was in the first half, actually. He's bringing the ball up in semi-transition. Chaos, defensive rebound. He's, he's bringing it up pretty fast. And this is like a top five fastest player in the NBA. This is a guy who, if he wanted to, could outrun the entire game. Instead, he sees it's kind of like three-on-three even matchup. And he's got such great vision and sense of everything going on around him. He slows down a little bit. So I got Desmond Bain behind me. Pitches the ball to Bain. And in one motion, screens off Bain's guy. And boom, out of nothing, creates a trail three for the, the maybe the one of the top five three-point shooters in the league right now uh, on a play where 99% of 22-year-old point guards are just going to the rim. If I got uh, like if I'm John Moran, I'm going to the rim. He sensed and saw and read three steps ahead. Let me do something selfless to get one of my teammates a look. I'll beat you by two years. When he was a rookie, age 20, in his, I don't know, second or third game of his career, the game they beat Brooklyn at home, it's the game that's known because he blocked Kyrie Irving at the end of regulation. Oh. The, the play that won the game was a similar play with Jay Crowder where he, John Morant's got the ball in transition. He sees Crowder behind him. He finds Crowder on the move, and then he, he, and then he goes to screen off two defenders to let Crowder have the open shot. And I, I remember this is when we could be in the locker room, talking to him in the locker room after the game. And this whole thing happens in three seconds. And it took him like 30 seconds to explain everything he saw and why he did it in the three seconds on the floor. And he he did that play game three, that same kind of play. He was doing that third game in the league at age 20. These guys have all the optionality in the world in terms of extra picks, cap flexibility, the whole thing. They're suddenly in a position where it's like, should they, should they try and go get like, another piece is this team is this team this good you're worried what, about being too good to trade and all yeah what do you what do you expect from them at the deadline um i don't have a good feel for what they what they're actually thinking i, I have a good feel for what they might be thinking just knowing zach Kleiman and sort of knowing what they've done um to me the only like major deal like break up what i consider the extended core kind of deal that would that might be out there, and I don't think it's out there. But even theoretically, like if, J, if, if there was some way for them to trade for Jalen Brown, I think they should be interested in that. Um, I doubt there is. Beyond that, I would be surprised if they did anything to break up what I consider sort of the extended core of the team, which is the obvious core is John Morant, Jaron Jackson, Desmond Bay, Dylan Brooks, and then I would throw Zaire Williams, who's the pet project they're they're, they're way in on, and then Brandon Clark. Those are six players, all twenty five and under, under contract beyond this season. I think they will be highly reluctant to mess with that. Beyond that, they got three other players on expiring contracts. They got other 
you know, players on good contracts. They're plus three on first round picks. Um, J- to me, Jarrett Culver is on the is on the roster to be traded. If there's some way to use a six he's, million dollar, he's, he's played pretty decently he when he's gotten in for them. He has, but there's no. I don't think there's a future. I doubt for him beyond the season on the team. So that's a six million dollar expiring contract. You pair that with some draft capital. What can that do for you? That's a pretty obvious thing to do. Um, Tyus Jones is playing so well. I mean, I, you got Tyus Jones and, and Kyle Anderson as unrestricted free agents this summer. But you're good enough already. Like, you don't do what you did with Grayson Allen and you say, well, we're not going to resign this guy. Let's move him for a couple second round picks. You don't do that with those players right now. Um, would they maybe be willing to include Kyle Anderson in a trade if they don't think they're going to resign him? Yeah. I think that the two players, Tyus Jones is really essential to the Grizzlies right now. I think the two players of note who are getting squeezed a little bit based on the way the roster is evolving are Kyle Anderson and Anthony Melton. And to me, those are the players of consequence I would be least surprised to see the Grizzlies do something with. And so you 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 pair some of these players we're talking about with some draft capital. Is that something that could help upgrade the middle of your rotation? To me, it's more of that kind of move if they do anything. It's not something that is core to the team move. I agree with you on all counts. If you ask me to pick one Memphis player that is most likely to be traded, and maybe the answer is no one is likely to be traded at all, but I would pick Kyle Anderson just because I've talked to a couple GMs who have told me, well, the Grizzlies are worried. Maybe they have too many fours, blah, blah, blah. Kyle Anderson's a free agent. And like, like I said before, his role on this team has, has changed a little bit. It's not quite as ball dominant right. and, and, and big as it was last year. I do think, to your point about Jalen Brown, and I mentioned this that particular theoretical trade on, my, on the podcast last week, I do think they've ascended so fast to the point that Clearly, they've been fascinated with this big wing three and D piece as the third guy with Jackson and Morant. That was Justice Winslow. That's Zaire Williams. I think they've ascended quickly enough and that it's real enough that they could and should say, oh, should we should we make that move now instead of waiting for Zaire Williams? But to your point. I don't think there's a Jalen Brown trade out there for them. Right. In part, a Boston's not trading him, period. Please be clear let's be clear on that and number two i think the grizzlies would be a little squeamish putting bane in yeah. a jail in a jalen brown trade i don't know if they would do it in the end at gunpoint no matter what the posturing is but i think they'd be squeamish and, I agree. and and if not jalen brown it's not like elite wings are sitting out there with right. ball handling skills that are easy to get so i i think they'll probably come pretty close to, to standing pat and that's totally fine the players seem fine with that they seem to love each other the chemistry on this team seems special i don't think they're rushing it but i do think they've gotten to the point where they would look around and say boy is there a world where like jason tatum becomes available or is there a world where whoever what name a, a top 20 wing right then wing wing like defensive skills too i just don't think that player exists i mean you, you don't have i mean at some point windows start closing for you but relative to the assets they have now, I mean, yeah, you have these expirings that'll come off the books, but they will be in position to, if there are, if there are opportunities this summer, they will be in a decent position this summer to do things too, um, relative to, 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 especially before the draft or up up to the draft with, with the multiple picks, the picks going forward, um, you know, sign and trade stuff. Like they have other avenues, but it might be, and one of the things they've shown is, I mean, they've been aggressive in some of these minor trades. But they don't, they've shown they don't have, they put more faith in their internal development than their external. 
And that's why you go out and you you you, you blow twenty million dollars of potential cap space to move up in a draft and get a Zaire Williams, right? I mean, I, I think they're focused on trying to grow internally if they can, because that is for a small market team, frankly, a better path usually to do so. What a story! And like, look, they're going to hit some roadblocks. Everybody does. Yeah. They may be playing a little over their head right now. Maybe they're not. I don't know. But for them to be in this place so soon after breaking up the final remnants of grit and grind is nothing short of remarkable. And more than that, I mean, again, I'm not there. I can't wait to get down there once this wave passes, hopefully, and I can make a visit. It just seems like such a freaking ball. It seems like a team that's so easy to root for that has really connected with the fans there. It just, it must be, the games must be unbelievable. There was a real feeling. I think. I think we're. I think we're in the middle of a, of a ramp up right now, as far as that goes. Because before the Golden State game, they had mostly played on the road. They'd come home for one a one off against Detroit, bad team. But they'd been on the road, beat both LA teams consecutive days, beat Cleveland on the road, beat Brooklyn on the road, beat Phoenix on the road. Right? They've won something like ten road games in a row. I think what they did on the road the past two or three weeks was when everyone nationally and in Memphis sort of realized, oh, this is different. And when they came home for that game against the Warriors a couple of days ago, from the from the jump, from the tip, it felt different in the building. And I think I think locally people sort of realized, okay, we're, we're, it's time for us all to ramp up. And so I think I think what that that Warriors game to me was the start of sort of a shift into like a, a different era for the team. I think that recognition didn't just happen nationally. It happened locally because they'd done all this on the road. They sort of came home like hell the conquering hero style in that Warriors game. Awesome stuff. Look, if you want to learn about the Grizzlies, the first thing you should do is subscribe to the Daily Memphian and read Chris Harrington stuff because it is second to none. It's it's beautifully written. It's incisive. Chris, thank you for making a little time. Here's to knock on wood a post-game beer in Memphis at some point in the next six months. Can we please make that happen, basketball gods and pandemic gods, please? Hey, my, my brother's a bartender downtown. We will hook you up, me and you, sitting at the bar. Chris Harrington, everybody. Thank you, sir. All right, thanks. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from $25 and under to $100 and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's macy's.com slash gift finder. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. 
Okay, a quick interlude here between segments. We had a trade. The Knicks have acquired Cam Reddish from the Atlanta Hawks for a Charlotte Hornets protected future first-round pick that will maybe convey this year, maybe next year. It'll probably be a low first-round pick. Thoughts, 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 thoughts. Eh, my thought is eh. I think the Knicks are probably the closest thing to a winner in this trade. The idea of Cam Reddish for them is the right idea. Uh, a 3 and D-ish wing who can create some off the dribble, maybe a lot off the dribble, maybe someday enough off the dribble to be like a good secondary pick and roll guy or even a guy who for segments as a six man kind of runs your offense a little bit. He has shot pretty well from three this year. I think he's around 38%. That's a big improvement for him. Um, the idea of that player is absolutely the right move for the Knicks with, with an excess first round pick with a cap sheet that after Randall, uh, underneath Randall's mega extension is actually like pretty okay. Has a lot of like 10 to $18 million contracts, which is good grist for trades. And the Knicks have clearly decided we are a trade team not a straight free agency team free agency and trades are almost kind of indistinguishable now um, at, at this level anyway. And, and like maybe Cam Reddish grows into that player. I think in Atlanta, is it, is it disappointing to turn the second pick from the Luca trade trade into a lower pick than the number 10 pick with which I selected Reddish? Yeah, probably it's not quite what they wanted. They had talks with a bunch of other teams, including the Pacers and the Lakers. But I, I do think, I just think that fit had had worn itself out. I mean, uh, Reddish's defense has been more theoretical than real. Some of the advanced metrics paint him as like one of the worst defenders in the NBA this year. I think that might be exaggerating a little bit. He just hasn't been very good. And more than that, he's just taking a whole pile of really bad pull-up twos off the dribble on the pick and roll just all the time. And it evinces a player who thinks who has ambitions higher than his current talent level in the NBA and higher than the Atlanta Hawks wanted him to be. And sometimes you get in those situations and it's like the only thing to do is separate. I I don't think he'll get to be that player in New York, but I don't think New York is wrong to invest what they invested, which is Kevin Knox in a eh, first round pick to see if they can somehow squeeze the right kind of player out of Cam Reddish because there's real undeniable talent there. It kind of reminds me on a smaller scale of the Jeremy Grant thing where he wasn't doing as much as he thought he could in Denver. He went to Detroit and did way, way more and probably discovered, okay, that's like above my water level. Now let's end up in a position where I get into the middle and find my right water level. So I think the Knicks did fine, depending in large part on how much they re-signed Cam Reddish for via extension. If it's too much, that could be dangerous. If it's in the right amount and he's tradable, that's fine. So I guess slight win for the Knicks, who really already have a ton of ball handling once Rose and Kemba Walker come back. So it's interesting to see how they fit him in. R.J. Barrett's been finding his groove lately. I love that. I, I felt for the first month of the season that R.J. Barrett was a little lost in the in the tug of war kind of between the Julius Randle all the time offense and the wait, we got these star or not star, but high priced guards anyway to come in here and take some of the offense from Julius Randle and wait, I'm RJ Barrett. I'm really good. And I'm kind of in the middle of that lately. That hasn't, he has reasserted himself and played really, really well. So it'll be interesting. So I guess slight win Knicks, slight disappointment Hawks, but I don't think there was really 
a great killer offer out there, much better than what the Knicks got. I think that was about Cam Reddish's value. And with that, let's go talk to the rights to Ricky Sanchez guys about the once weird, now kind of boring Philadelphia 76ers. Once upon a time, there was a really interesting NBA team. I was endlessly fascinated with them. They had an incredible two-way center a 6'8 or 6'9 giant point something who couldn't shoot but allegedly shot threes okay in practice but didn't shoot in games. Then they traded for Jimmy Butler. That was super cool. They had Markel Fultz kind of who forgot how to shoot and maybe forgot how to play basketball and I think still exists somewhere in the world, I think in Orlando. Then they traded him, but they also traded a bunch of stuff for Tobias Harris. This is weird, crazy. I wanted to watch every game and dissect every possession. And now the team just sort of exists. And I don't think I've even mentioned them on a podcast all year in relation to anything other than the player who shall not be named. But it's time, 28 days from the trade deadline and counting, it's time to discuss the mess but yet kind of good team, but also a mess that is the Philadelphia 76ers. And there is no one I'd rather do that with than my one beer crew from the rights to Ricky Sanchez, which is not going to have a bagel named after it. I don't even know what they, you got so much stuff going on. Mike Eskin and comedy's Mike Levin. Guys, how are you? It was always uh, destined for it to end like this for us. Just starting it off thumbing our noses at every team that just ends up existing, you know, just the sort of good basketball teams that we said we never wanted to be. And here we are, here we are at the end of it with one guy that we love and a bunch of guys running in slow motion in <laughs> fifth seed. Here, here we are. We deserve it. We deserve all. Yeah. They do still have, they've managed to be, I'm, all hope is not lost. Let's establish that first, but the, yeah. they've managed to, to find their way into just above average Doug Collins basketball while also having the uh, singular strangeness of the last eight, nine years of Sixers basketball. So it's been a fun blending of eras uh, just for them <laughs> to be. Do you guys remember how much stuff they traded for Tobias Harris? I think about, Do you ever yeah. go back and look at the trade and be like, oh my God. And now, and now it's like. What is he making? What is the contract? Could he pass once in a productive way? I mean, I love Tobias. He's a good player, but my God. I heard you guys talking about, particularly Mike. I know that Mike drives, drives my crazy. is processing speed. And I laughed because I had a 10 things item that I was going to use as a dislike this week. And I, and I postponed it for a week about just clips of Tobias Harris dribbling while a teammate has his hands up in the air like, yo, I'm right here, like right here, and not in a pass not being made. Mike, I, I want to start with you because I'm worried about you. Your most recent episode of The Rights to Ricky Sanchez, which was yesterday, um, featured you breaking down who would win a 100-meter dash between Danny Green, George Niang, Seth Curry, and who's the four, who was the fourth contestant? Tobias. Tobias, and I, I and added you, Korkmaz to the to the race as well. And you added Korkmaz just because another slow guy. And you declared, I don't think I would finish last in that race. I think I could beat somebody, one of those guys in that race. Why? Did it, and I really hadn't thought about the Sixers as a slow, slow team, and that like that slow until I until I've been listening to you guys more recently. And they are kind of slow, aren't they? It drives you crazy. 
It does drive me crazy. They're 27th in pace. It feels like 39th <laughs> at minimum. Uh, and there's just a lot of guys that are very slow. You list, you list some, some of them. Niang, I mean, and Bede's not, you know, fast general. It's just like everybody is slow except for Matisse and Maxi. And it just takes so long for them to get into their sets. It takes long for them to get around screens. It takes long for them to make the pass the open guy. They're not particularly good passers. People are open. They're not being found. When they're found, they're, the pass is coming in the wrong spot. They're, it's dribble handoff city. We're, we're spending like an hour and a half trying to get the ball to the, the guy who's ceiling from like 35 feet away. So we can start the offense and run the set. It's just none of it's none of it's pleasurable. They came off a seven game win streak, so that was nice, and then they had a disappointing game in Charlotte. But it is it is hard to, especially when the a big, strong, fast, athletic, good passing guy is just sitting at home, and there's all of the holes that this team has sort of really mushed into one big hole. Big Ben Simmons shaped hole that is not there, and just make it really puts into perspective how by by contrasting how little everyone else brings to the table in, in those fields, and it just it drives me crazy. Yeah, and Bede used to be the slow guy on the court. You know, like the, the, it used to be, it it used there were times mm-hmm. where he was the the slowest guy, and now it seems like they have probably three or four players. Who would be the slowest guy on the on any team? That's right, right. It's, like Curry Brown, would be. Red Brown Yang used to be. worry about Ben Simmons outrunning the the team, outrunning Joel Embiid. Like he's too fat, we got to slow him down. And now it's like Joel Embiid's like a monster athletically yeah. compared to these. I mean, he is a monster, and he's running the break. He's starting the offense and urging people to go faster. And guys are like, "Let's hang on a second. Let's look around. Let's look both ways before making a pass." <laughs> Everybody and just calm well, down a second. There's a there really is everyone has a has a very strong speed limit. Like it's as if everyone's wearing like a heart monitor where if they go too fast they'll explode. It's sort of like it's sort of a bummer that we started off with the bad stuff because um it like all of it illustrates what a bummer it is that Joel Embiid is playing as well as he is with the you know, not not a ton of bad players around him, just like a misshapen sort of like blob of of players. And he has not just improved from season to season, but improved through the season and looks like he has, the game has, <laughs> I was going to say the game has slowed well, down. It has, it certainly has. <laughs> it certainly has. People around Maybe him have slowed down. Maybe it's because everyone is, yeah. He is, he is straight up majestic on the floor like on both ends of the floor he's when he's dialed in defensively obviously he's incredible but i I, like the subtleties even of what he does with his feet and his arms and just offensively you guys have talked about it recently like the dunks he's been unleashing in the last couple weeks are like oh my god he's gonna rip the rim down but he's he's dribbling in from the arc it's just he's been the best player in the nba for the last three weeks i think full stop yeah the the break the, the two things that have been a difference this year and they didn't happen till after he came back from covid he played well before that but the the mid range wasn't going down but the two things that are so different are one the stuff on the break which looks like it was just a decision he made that he said i wonder if i could try to do this and he 
it looked like he discovered that he could do it more than he thought he could, you know, that they're not going to pressure you. The, the guy that guards you isn't the guy that's going to be down there. So you have three quarters of the court to run with the ball. And he's a, and he looked like he just made that decision. So that, and his passing, when I say it, the game is slowed down. He just, he looked like he was rushing everything before. Like he waited a second or two too late to decide what he wanted to do. And now like a quarterback that figures it out, or something like now he seems to see where everybody's going to be and is making not just the regular pass that we wanted him to make all these years, but he's making great passes, you know, like really great passes and seeing the court differently. And I, I would love to know, I would love to talk to him and ask what happened, like what clicked, but, and I know he works, he says he worked hard in the, in the off season, but it just seems like something clicked. seems he's like he inc- saw something or he's an incredibly smart player. Um, in, in person and I wrote at the beginning of the year that it was it was kind of cool to watch him be this like jumbo point guard like he'd get the ball at the elbow and he'd be directing directing traffic like you cut there you cut there and he'd be directing one guy to cut not to hit him with the pass but because he knew that guy cuts there the defense rotates there three steps later that shooter or alleged shooter is open it's just amazing we're talking I mean they have a good team I just think that we can they're 11th in offense, 13 in defense. They're like above average. I think all three of us probably agree that as presently constituted, they're not going anywhere serious without with a zero in in Ben Simmons roster spot. And Mike, I know you I know where you're starting to sit on this, so I'll start with you. Spike, I'm not quite sure. Mike, I'm also a little worried about you because you have reached the, <laughs> you've reached the point. It seems like in recent episodes, you've reached the point at which you are ready to just rip the Band-Aid off. Just get it done. I don't care if it's not Damian Lillard. I don't care if it's not Bradley Beal. I don't care if it's like headlined by Tyrese Halliburton. I just want it done. We can't waste Embiid's incredible season with a zero in this roster spot. Uh, is that an accurate representation of your current feeling? I just get it. If, if this gets to the tra- past the trade deadline and it's not done, you are going to be drinking heavily immediately afterwards. Well, I do love Tyrese Halliburton. I've loved him for a long, long time. He's awesome. Uh, and and what this team needs as far as just like processing speed goes. Um, I I don't think that they should settle for a bad trade uh, because I, I really believe in the idea that, yes, this is like sort of pissing away one season of Embiid's prime. But if you get the guy that you need, it saves Embiid's career, basically. But I also don't think that holding out into the summer allows you to make like the perfect Ben Simmons trade and everybody's happy. I think that you can make a halfway trade right now, trade for guys that can help right now, athletes, someone who can rebound, someone who can push the ball, someone who can get their own shot, and some future pieces and picks, and then finagle those this summer into your Dame Lillard, your Bradley Beal, whoever you decide is is that guy, James Harden. It's just, I, I we can't, Embiid is too good right now. One of my favorite things, we talked about Embiid in transition, but my favorite thing is guys now trying to take a charge on Embiid when he's dribbling from so far away and he just sort of elusively sidesteps them and sort of agiles, but he's seven foot two, like seven trillion pounds. And he's still maneuvering his body in a way that is just like, nope, sl- sliding by that. And them just standing there holding their crotch, expecting to be plowed into 
and Embiid's dunking behind them is a very perfect image. So I don't, I just, I can't waste this, how good he is with how we, we don't know how long his prime is going to be, hopefully a very long time, but I think that there's a half measure to give them a shot, allow Embiid the opportunity to lift this team over the hump, finally get into the conference finals. And if the shooters on this team get hot, Tobias, Tobias, <laughs> your oh, face, your, I wish people could see Tobias, your face. Come uh, on. Then maybe they have a chance to Stop. beat a couple teams if the matchups go right, tweaked ankle here or there, whatever. But I think like that there's a middle. Like they did last year? Like the, yeah. match, like the matchups broke like right the matchups broke right last year. But uh, yeah. there's a middle ground <laughs> trade that, that could happen where you could you could get some piece of both. Help Embiid now and help Embiid in the future. It's interesting. What I'm hearing, Mike, is let Rich Paul win. That's what that's that's what let Rich Paul. No, I'm just kidding. But it, but all the intel I've gotten is that the Sixers don't want to do that. They if they if they're flipping stuff for a guy, if they're doing this middleman thing, they want to do it all at once. They don't want to. They they also don't want to waste a, a, a season of Embiid with a half measure. They want to do it all at once. You just don't always get what you want. When you want it, Spike. I have it. Your stance on this has been less clear to me in recent episodes. So, are you ready to rip the Band-Aid off? Oh, not no matter what. Like, obviously, you're not trading him for like whatever, nothing interesting. Like Colin Sexton, who's not even going to play this year. Uh, where are you on the rip the Band-Aid of Ben Simmons off? Well, I I think this year is pretty sunk anyway. It's pretty rare when you go back and that there are teams that trade for meaningful like starters at the deadline. And those teams go to the conference finals, right? It's, and and it's harder than ever this year to integrate new players because they don't practice as much, and there's protocols, and there's all. I think this year is cooked anyway. the The thing that I would worry about is th- there will become a point where yeah, I agree. Maury did the right thing and not trading him at the b- beginning of this when his value was low. And I, I was like, well, there's never any guarantee that his value is going to go up. Like, look at the lasting memory of him. But there will be a point where it will crest. And I don't want to miss that crest. Like, I, I think that there's a, a – I've said this a, a few times now. There's a realistic possibility that the Simmons thing, like him as a player, goes very, very wrong. Like, wrong or then it's gone. And I, I just – I wonder how many GMs are wondering about that possibility as well. So like fir- Sam Amick reported this yesterday, and you guys have done an incredible job tracking all the, the Simmons dribbles, the, the tidbits of information that get out. But he mentioned things – he mentioned the idea that Simmons' contract, which the Sixers would like viewed as an asset around the league, he's a young player under team control for all these years – is not viewed as that much of an asset by other teams. I don't know how universal that is. I have had a couple of people say on different teams say different versions of, well, Zach, imagine if he flames out here. That's yeah. that's two flameouts, and like doubly hard for us to do what Daryl is trying to do now. And we have all that money on the books. Like that's the downside for. I haven't really thought of it that way because in my head I'm assuming like. He comes back, he plays well, everything's awesome. And like, yeah, maybe he has some struggles in the second round of the playoffs again, but you got to get there first. Yeah, I I think it's more likely, not more likely, who knows what the likelihood is, but I think it is entirely possible that at some road game, he goes to the line, the crowd taunts him, he misses both, 
and he never wants to go to the line again. I, I know that sounds hyperbolic, but I'm not being that way. Like it's been building to this. It wasn't just one thing that happened in one series. It was a slow evolution to get where he got. And to pull this either takes a massive amount of ego and stubbornness as we were talking about in the last pod, or it takes a sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, fear for facing what you have to face. And I, I think that he's going to have to face that no matter where he goes. It's not just Philly. And uh, one thing that's Mike Mike has mentioned is that it does take a very particular team to want to trade for him right now. And that's why you you keep coming back to the Timberwolves because they're at this place where players don't want to re- really go there. Not not because of the players there, but because where where it is. It's not a glamour destination. They're sort of at a point with towns where they got to do something. They've gotten pretty good at least. And they're sort of in, well, if if Simmons doesn't work out, I guess we gave it our best shot. But they seem like as far as they don't have that, the, the players that the Sixers want. But as far as a team that would want him, it would make sense for them to really, really want him. But you can't come up with a lot of those teams. And really. the interesting thing about the Timberwolves is they're 20 and 21. They're tied with the Clippers and the Lakers for seventh in the loss column in the West. Portland bailing out on the season, which is now happening which will, is important for you guys, we will talk about. Like, barring a disaster, the Wolves are guaranteed to get into the play-in. Yeah. Like, their level of urgency, now maybe they have higher ambitions. Like, why not the top six? And then you, but their, their, their sort of, like, anxiety level about just making the play-in should be pretty close to zero, barring, like, Towns getting hurt or, or something like that. Sorry, Mike, you were going to say something. I, I love Jared Vanderbilt. That's... That's something I have to say. He's amazing. Uh, he's like an he, he's he's like he was like playing slam ball out there, yeah. just jumping over dudes and getting rebounds like at the top of the backboard. Joy to watch. Um, yeah, I the you mentioned the contract from the from the Amic piece, and it's like I that that doesn't really make sense to me. Like, what is the con- like? Do, would you rather bend on an expiring deal so then you have to like pay him a bunch of money and a new contract if he plays like the same? It seems like. He's yes, it's like Goldie Goldilocks syndrome. It's got to be just exactly. like, just like two years. That's that's what exactly. I want. So I think like look, he's a guy. No one like him ever becomes available this early in his career with this many years left on his contract. He supposedly wants to go anywhere but Philadelphia. Um, so he'd be happy to play. He's his legs are incredibly fresh. They couldn't be fresher. Um, <laughs> so I I think it's I think there will be a bunch of teams that are interested in him that will want him, but because the list is so small of who we would want in return or Dow would want in return, then it becomes like, how, how can you make those work? And there's plenty of teams. Everybody's saying like, well, they could be a great third team in a Ben trade. It's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're chock full of third teams. We're locked in. We don't need any more third teams, but it's, it's hard to find out. And that's why at this point, because of how well Embiid's playing, I'm, I'm happy to do the medium trade and, and rather than, and then trade those pieces for, for whatever you need to get the guy. The like ultimate so, so piece I'm, in the summer. I'm even curious, like, what's the medium trade that you even like? Because I'm, I go through, like, go through the names, like, this, from big trade to medium trade. Let's go through, like, very quickly. Dame, that's out. Beal, for now, na- for now, those are mm-hmm. out. For now, Beal's out. Harden is a summer thing, and we can talk about the potential pursuit of James Harden in the the reunification with Daryl Moore if you want. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's like completely off the table but we'll see Mm -hmm. and then after that it's like king's stuff hawks stuff wolves stuff 
Pacers stuff, mm-hmm. I guess, although the two of their stuffs are centers and so is Joel Embiid. Toronto has a great ready-made package, but I just don't – I think they actually – like they're not going to trade you Fred Van Vliet and OG Ananobi no. for Ben Simmons. I, that's just – that's too much for them to give up, and one of those is too little, I think, for Daryl to take. Like is there even – a the Minnesota stuff we mentioned, is, is there even a medium trade that you like? Is it none of the above out there somewhere? Like, what is the medium trade? I don't even know what it is. Is it the Kings? I think there's a combo. If, if it is a three-team thing, I would say, talk to me about, like, Halliburton and then one of the Spurs guys, like a DeJounte Murray or a Derek White situation. Um, you can put those together. There's also, like, a Pacers guy in there if you if you like, if TJ Warren is alive um and you want to get him in there like there's a couple like you could are you just you just pick you pick guys, guys from, you pick guys because one of those teams yeah. could, could decide to fully tear it down and just go draft picks and then one six somebody gets draft picks we get it like the sixers get one or two draft picks to then package in the summer and then you go from there um because really like they just don't have enough ball handlers on the team like seth is an incredible shooter um but he's so slow and so small and so reluctant to make like difficult passes he's just and sometimes just gets eaten by the defender in front of him because he's four foot three. And there's just, and it's Shake, and Shake's been injured, and he's also very slow. We haven't talked about him as another guy that's slow. Like, I love slow guys. I adore slow guys. I adore slow guys that play at their own pace, but there's just too many of them. There's only, that's all we got. And so, like, what about, you got to get Kyle Anderson somehow. If oh we're going God. full slow, you have to get slow mo into the trade somehow. Yeah. A guy who's so slow. That his slowness is a legitimate NBA weapon because NBA players are like, what is this thing? I don't understand how this yeah. moves. There's only so many times you can uh, zag when other people are zigging that you you just yeah. die. <laughs> you just die right off. <laughs> like, do you have a medium deal that you like? Is there one out there? Uh, I, I sound like I don't have an opinion on it. I'm just so over him. I don't. I and I have no idea. There's so many rumors. I, and I'm not going to just – I'm not like a Maury sycophant or whatever here, but I'm just going to like trust that he'll he'll do the right thing on this. And I'll criticize it if I think it's wrong. But I'm not going to stay up at night worrying about which trade. I don't like either of the Kings guys really that much. Halliburton's fine, but it, it doesn't – if it's a medium trade, then it's fine with, with the eyes on something else. I don't – care about Fox. Uh, I love Karis LeVert and I love TJ Warren and uh, but you know what are we, what are we doing I, here? I guess we should talk about I mean CJ McCollum is out with the collapsed lung but he's apparently recovering fine and could be should be back at some point. I, I think the recent reports were not so far away. I mean I guess that that would be one. I don't know how that fits with Portland's plans of like tank and rebuild around Dame next year but does that does he do anything for you? That's yeah. been one of the names forever and ever and ever. Not not much. I think I think CJ is a guy that because his contract is so big and also has a number of years left on it, that's the guy that'd be like, okay, that's not a medium trade. That's kind of the trade that you're making. And then you saddle him and Tobias together as like well, these people oh are here until their until their contracts expire. So I'd rather do like a collection of tradable contracts with like yeah. youth, a little bit more defense, a little bit more speed. Like Levert is another name if you if you can blend those together. Bogdan Bogdanovich is another name. I'm just picking and choosing. A little sampler. A little sampler platter of, of enough players. <laughs> and platter. Throw some picks and a pick swap in there. Been a while since we had a pick swap. Then I could be satiated. But like, I don't know. The, the thing that I've, I haven't mentioned it in a while because there hasn't been any news of it. But like, 
I, I wonder if there's any conversation whatsoever about Zion. And whoa, just because like, I didn't see that one. I didn't see that it's one. It's obviously very different kind of player than the Sixers like necessarily need. But as far as long-term fit goes, like him and Embiid together is just like world destructive. And Spike's not a Zion guy. Um, I, I have both. heard, I have heard, um, the, I have, as of now, I don't. Based on what I've heard, I do not think the Pelicans will be involved in get in get in getting Ben Simmons. And any team can be involved as the third or fourth team. I don't think they will be trying to get sure. Ben Simmons. That could always change. As of today, just felt like two two guys, not so dissimilar as far as NBA basketball goes, but um, that are unhappy and. I don't even want Zion on the Sixers. I'm that's afraid that's to re- put anybody to with any sort of like minor red flag of any kind onto the Sixers. I, yeah. All of a sudden, he'll have some Twitter issue. I don't know what the hell will happen. CJ and Dame are basically um, already Sixers with their collapsed lung and various abdomen injuries. <laughs> I will say, I, 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 based on the reaction I saw to the Hawks noise this week, which I think that those two teams have had conversations. I don't know if they've ever been anywhere near serious. I do think John Collins is becoming a little bit underrated. I think there's there's a perception that he's kind of the two things I hear about John Collins uh, about about him from front office people and coaches who are skeptical are number one, well, does he impact winning? That's really just code for like, is he a good enough defensive player? Uh, and number two, well, what is he without Trey Young? Is he anything without Trey Young tossing him lobs? I'm like, well, he doesn't really get that many lobs from Trey Young anymore because Clint Capella gets all the mm-hmm. lobs. I think John Collins is pretty damn good. He's a 40% three-point shooter. He can create off the dribble. He's gotten better defending fours. Do you want him to be your full-time five? No, but he, he doesn't have to be with Joel Embiid. And then I heard, like, well, how does he fit with Tobias Harris and this and that? I, I kind of, like, I don't care. I like yeah. the, My response is, like, I, is it a perfect fit? No. Tobias has played the three. He's playing next to Niang and Embiid sometimes right now, and it's, like, okay. I just am not making any decision based on how does it fit with Tobias Harris. I just I, I think John I like John Collins. I, I like that fit actually. I, I agree with you. When I started talking about it, I was like, put Harris on the bench if that's if that's what we're doing, you know, like find find a way. And the thing that worried me about Collins was and it's just a you know, a report or whatever, but he's not happy with what his role is. And I sort of think he's a guy that is perfect in whatever his role is. And I would be concerned that he thinks he's something different than he is. But I was stunned by him during the playoffs last year. He's pretty relentless, you know, and supremely athletic. And He's not slow. No. And I I look at his stats and I see that he's only shooting three and a half threes a game, but I've never looked at him stutter on one really like i wonder if you just told him to let it fly and he was standing in the corner all the time whether he would be a guy that shot six of them if if you tell him to go ahead and shoot. yeah that's my concern so, I, I i i do you know so, so many of the issues with tobias are his unwillingness to just like hoist from deep and why Embiid and like niang's numbers are so good together because niang just hoists and yes it'd be nice to have collins because there's only like three people on the sixers that could jump over a ruler but it's another guy that can't really move or that can't really just shoot threes quickly or unwilling to shoot threes quickly. That's his role in Atlanta. Like you said, like it seems like he doesn't want to be used as a floor spacer. He wants to be involved more in pick and rolls. He wants to be getting the ball in the post more. Sixers got plenty of guys that need to want the ball in the post. Uh, It doesn't seem like a perfect fit, but again, like, you know, it'd be nice to have him as a backup five in the playoffs. 
when Drummond is a poor fit, so you can have some switchability. Sixers have never had that behind Embiid. It would be nice in that sense, but not a not a perfect fit for me. I'd rather have a couple fast guards that can get their own basket. What do you guys make of the spike? I think you referred to it on your last or two podcasts ago, maybe as the smoke around James Harden and this and the potential. Like he hasn't signed his extension. He's gonna he can be a free agent this offseason. The Sixers rumblings, I don't know if they're rumblings, rumors, they're always going to be there because of the connection between Maury and Harden. Is this just, do you think, I mean, it's impossible to know. I can tell you a little bit about the speculation out there, but is this just teasing? Have you given up all hope of this after after coming close to getting him, maybe coming close to getting him? I don't know how close they really got before before Brooklyn swooped in. Or is this a pipe dream in your head? Have you, have you trained yourself not to even get your hopes up? Where are we on that? Oh, I think it's possible for sure. I, it it feels like real smoke to me. Like now, it could be the uh, it could be like a whisper down the lane thing where you know everybody ends up hearing it, people that you trust, but maybe you all heard it from the same one place, and and then you heard it from somebody you trust, so you felt like it was real. But it felt like a real. It it feels like a real thing to me, and I I also got the sense. That even though I always believed that Brooklyn just sort of guessed that Brooklyn was his first choice, that Philly was his first choice um, last year. So I think it's certainly possible. I think you know when you're when you're thinking about um, where you want to spend your life and where you want to work, your your boss is a, a pretty important thing. You know, everybody talks about championship, championship, championship. Like your working conditions and who you work for is super important. And Daryl let him, like, he knows what he's getting. He knows what he's going to be allowed to do. He knows how, you know, eventually how the offense will be run, even if it's not run then. I And it, he's, I'm sure he loves playing with Durant, but that's Durant's team. You know, like, that's his world. That's not Harden's world. And I do think it's possible. I do think it's possible, for sure. I mean, Philly would be... Embiid's world forever. I mean, he as long as Embiid is there, that's his team. I mean, just the per, the, the sheer force of personality and the fact that you're 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 saying maybe no. Well, he's a big personality, but I don't know that he is like this. Not that Harden is either. Harden's seven years older, been around the league, like real respected by other players. Like, I, I don't know if Embiid is in that whole world the same way that Harden is. And Embiid seemed more than willing to cede that to Butler, you know, when Butler was here. And um, I what think a, What he, a great fit Jimmy Butler was, by the way. Wow. <laughs> Not a great fit with everybody here. Not a great <laughs> fit with everybody. That's true. But some of those everybody's are gone, yeah. Um, yeah. As, is, as is Jimmy Butler. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think so, I, I think it's Harden's possible. never played with a big that could really do anything aside from catch lobs. Um, so I think that would be an interesting fit. And I do think there's just like a, there's something neat about, okay, there's the small guy and the big guy together. And like the big guy has his arm around the small guy. And that's like, that's fair. It's their team together. Like, it doesn't seem like, you know, when it's Tatum and Brown, they're like the same size and beating Simmons are too tall. Like if they're like Murray and Jokic, it's Shaq, like, that's perfect. That works out yeah. nicely. Shaq and Kobe. Yeah. You Shaq need a height Kobe. difference. Stockton Malone, give me a height <laughs> difference and they're fine. Everybody's happy together. If everybody, at least the tall guy knows he's a tall guy, small guy knows small guy, it's fine. Um, I will I will say this. You, if you want James Harden in Philadelphia, you should be rooting hard against the Nets, obviously, because yeah. 
I look, I don't, uh, it's impossible to tell any of these things. Everyone is lying at all times. All the whispers are coming from 7,000 different whispering places. The, all I can do is hear it all, at least what I hear and make my best guess. My best guess is it, it's not a fait accompli that James Harden is going back to Brooklyn. I think that's overwhelmingly the likeliest outcome in part because I think they are overwhelmingly likely to be super successful in the postseason, even if Kyrie Irving is a part-time player. And if Kyrie Irving is a full-time player, I think they're the favorites to win the championship. Um, and if they win, it, it's over. He's going you back. You think, though? If something... Because, I mean, huh? Kawhi and Durant both left after winning. That's true. It's, that's fair. Um, I wonder if I, winning but, actually makes him more likely to leave in the sense that he's like, all right, I did one here. Now let me like end the rest of my career being being the guy somewhere else. Maybe that's that's actually I I guess you could flip it around that way. I just don't think I don't get the sense that it's like a hundred percent a done deal. He's going to back back to Brooklyn, which really it sounds dramatic, but it's what in the NBA nothing is ever a hundred percent a done deal. It's the crazy, crazy. Well, thing. they would ask him uh, the the Harden of preseason when he looks like he's put on twenty pounds. The Sixers would ask him to like keep that on, please, because we'd prefer you to move as slow as possible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you, we need we want you processing like a laptop from two thousand three. If there's any way we can keep uh, that honestly, up. Honestly, we go through all this stuff. I, I've said this all year. I I just don't see a Simmons trade. Yeah, like I I have I haven't heard I haven't heard of anything like people talk about. Oh, it's at the goal line. It's at the twenty yard line. Like I haven't even heard anything like we caught the kickoff. <laughs> Or the kickoff like went over our head into the end zone and we're getting the ball at the 20 or wherever you get the ball now in the NFL. Like, I just haven't heard, and I'm not as plugged in as like Woj and Shams and Windy and some of the other guys, but I just haven't heard of anything. Like, there were those rumblings around December 15th when they were clearly taught, like there were ideas being pitched around and people were at least answering the phone and talking to like, what about this? And now there's this noise like maybe Tobias can be thrown in here and who the hell else can we throw into? I just haven't heard of anything like actually really getting anywhere, which makes me think if I had to bet right now, if you forced me, put my money on some outcome, does he get traded or not? I'm I'm going not. And I don't know, like that's a whole big thing if he's on that team after the trade deadline, because I also don't think he's then coming back. Yeah. And playing, no. and then it just gets like weirder for longer. But that's I, I Weird, do, weirder I, for I, longer you, is are, is sort of the whole Sixers thing. That's I mean, do either of you guys like? Are you all prepared for that? I just I just don't. Make, things can always change in a heartbeat, but like I just haven't heard of anything. Yeah, I think it's certainly yeah, possible. Prepared. I think that there's no reason for Daryl to take a trade before the deadline. At this point, we've we've gotten past media day. And opening night and a, a big, you know, Sixers struggling and they're like hovering around 500 and they're in the play in situation. We've already like been through that. Everybody's gotten comfortable with the idea that like he's here, he's here, he's not here, he's on the books, he's not playing. And we don't really know if they're finding him or they're not. There's conflicting reports. It doesn't really matter. Um, I stopped. Ca- I stopped. Yeah, it's not my I, st- money. I honestly stopped caring. Like, I, first, I don't want to count his money. Second, like, I just either I don't want to hear this yeah. obfuscation about we're kind of finding a. But I just like I don't care. Doesn't matter. So at this point, deadline is less than a month away. You just you run it up to the to the last minute. Uh, that's going to be a difficult day. I'll say. I I've had every time that <laughs> it's de- it's a trade deadline or NBA draft. I I get like a migraine from just staring at Twitter for too long. So that's going to happen. But uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really possible, but I think there's no reason for Daryl to say anything other than like, we're going to wait as long as possible until like the clock strikes, whatever, three o'clock, and then the the after effects of three o'clock on trade deadline day. Yeah, it'll be quite a podcast that night if he's still on the team. We were we were debating it on the pod last night. How do we handle it the rest of the year? Can we we do that bad podcast that night when he's still on the team? And can we just make pretend he doesn't exist for the rest of the year? And uh, but it, it, it was it's a, hard for me to note. do that because they because they yeah. are missing like exactly what he is. Like obviously he's not perfect fit. No, obviously no, he's not no. a perfect fit with MB. But like right. a guy that can defend and push the ball and rebound. Like that's what they that's what they're missing. The they're, rebounding thing is is incredible, and that's when it dawned on me how much athleticism they lost. Is when I looked at their rebounding numbers like three weeks ago. I was like, wow, I knew they were not great on the glass, but they're the worst rebounding team in the NBA. Yeah. And then you look at why, and it's like, well, we replaced this giant athletic guy with like small guys or guys who can't jump and like we don't have any good our centers can rebound and nobody else can rebound look I, I'm not gonna sit here and say like I'm confident in it like I have no idea what the hell is gonna happen if you I'm just saying if at pseudo gunpoint you force me to guess is he getting traded this season or not I would I would bet no what's um, pseudo gunpoint I wonder point, also like I don't know like a nerf gun okay. pointed I thought there's a gun nearby <laughs> but it's not pointed at you it's pointed like towards the ground yeah. um uh, or like the fake, the fake, the robber with the fake yeah, gun sure. under his okay. coat or something. Um, I wonder if Embiid, everyone's like a waste a year of Embiid's prime and Embiid's going to get frustrated. Has Embiid voiced, has Embiid addressed that at all? I also, no. I, I honestly wonder, I would love to have a candid, he would never do it, I don't think, conversation about it. Because I wonder if he really cares. Because the vibe early in the season from his press conference, remember he made fun of the Ben Simmons like shooting Instagram videos yep. and all the vibe was like, I'm just kind of done with this. Like I'm done with this. I wonder if he actually cares. C- cares in what way? Cares in like, I can't believe the organization is wasting this incredible season I'm having. Just trade for, get me I, some help now. My my sense is, is that there are probably moments when he feels that way. But by and large... It seems like he is on the same page as Maury, and he seems like he's enjoying himself, honestly. He's still taking passive-aggressive shots at Simmons during pressers. Like, he still, when he talks about Maxi or talks about Thibault and talks about shooting when they're open and and getting better and improving, like, I, there's no person that can convince me that that isn't a, a shot at Simmons. So I th- and he's well within his rights to like the for, sure for, like he's been with them. It was their team, and like Embiid got better in these ways. Embiid sacrificed in these ways, and Simmons just like didn't do the thing that he needed him to do, and for the team f- to do, and he just kept like isolating more into the kind of player that he defaults to. And it's like on the one hand, like Spike is more mad at Simmons than I am. I, I have a tough time like siding with management. And like siding with the Sixers, like they're they're fine, whatever. But like, and Simmons as a coworker, like I'd be pissed off, and be, should be pissed off. The entire Sixers should be the players on the team should be pissed off that he's not there because they, he should be. And if he's not there, they should have someone else in his spot willing to like do the jobs that he's not. Like, I on the one hand, Tobias is having to do more than he should have to because he's not those aren't his strengths. And I've been I've been it's very a fair point. People people now want him to be a player. That he he just yeah. isn't, and that's that's not his fault. Nor is this Spike has said it. The, the contract isn't his fault either. He didn't give himself the contract. Yeah, it's just I think. Look, I'm gonna boot Tobias if I was there, and I think everyone should boot Tobias when he plays as bad as he is, like 100. percent But he was making improvements on the defensive end for years with the Sixers when he didn't have to cover one of the best wing 
initiators out there. And now he's having to like cover those guys and he's not good enough at it. And so it's like, he's having to rebound a little more. He's having to create a little bit more. They just need him to do those things. He's not doing them. And so I, I get why people would be mad at Simmons. If you're a, a teammate of his, including Embiid and Embiid's always been just very funny and human, I would say in how he talks about Simmons, because it's like, he's saying like the obvious thing. Like the Instagram videos, it's like, yeah, we all want, we would love to see that. We all know what we want to see. And it's him shooting in the game. And he never did. So I was like, what does he want me to say? To be clear, I'm, I'm mad at Simmons because he singularly can ruin this entire thing. I mean, there were, there were a lot of a lot of awful moves made by previous admi- administrations, by previous leadership at the Sixers that made it harder for them to succeed. But his not only refusal to address the the things that he needed to address, but basically giving his middle finger to everybody who suggested that he did as people didn't understand basketball the entire time. And it, it all ended up in a, a colossal, legendary, historical collapse by him in the playoffs that was so bad that he can't even face it that he can't even come back is like if he had an ounce of hubris about this during this entire, but he hasn't. So just like, I'm just like, screw him. (laughs) Like, like I, he, him, his, his insistence on being what he is and proving everybody wrong. That it's just like, everybody was full of, but him, I just, he's so full of, it's just like this entire thing has been full of and we spent years arguing about whether he needs to shoot or not. He's a basketball player that has the ball in his hands every play. Of course he needs to shoot. See, why? And I'm just mad at him for ruining this entire thing, for handling it this way, for making everybody else, even going so far as to like shame people by saying that he you know, this is a mental thing and you can't be critical of it. And it's just like this whole thing. I'm just so over it. And he, he, he is a, if they never get to the apex, he is a big reason why they haven't. I don't, I don't want to relitigate this. But every Sixers conversation is inherently some relitigation of some of the crazy Uh, things that have happened (laughs) over the last eight years. The mental health thing is super interesting. That's for another day because that's a long discussion. I will say, but on on a pure value perspective thing, the four big, big, Big process picks, the the superstar draft picks, yep. are Embiid, Simmons, Fultz, and Okafor. Yep. Yep. And right now, one of those dudes is playing in the in the NBA for the Sixers, and it's Joel Embiid. Um, well, we're gonna have to reconvene at some point as this saga continues. The rights to Ricky Sanchez is must listen for Sixers fans and NBA fans in general. Spike Eskin, Mike Levin, thank you for your time. It's late. I appreciate you making time and. Stay safe out there. (laughs) Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.